1: Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Privacy. I'm Lloyd. I'm this show's engineer and sometimes co-host with Mari. And if you don't know our host, Mari, let me tell you a little bit about her. She's a local attorney and privacy consultant and is the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor. It's a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft with a CD. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in our county. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on TV on uh, Dateline, 48-Hour CNN, NBC, ABC News, O'Reilly Factor, and she was on Fox last night. Oh, yeah, as actually as Mary Frank, not <laughs> Mary Frank, <laughs> they so. made
0: a mistake on Geraldo. Yeah. I'll never forgive him, right,
1: yeah, <laughs> and um, uh, so that's about it, so. Uh, How are we doing this evening, Mary? Oh,
0: you know, I'm very excited. We are going to have a great show tonight because, you know, do you remember back, I told you in January, I was reading the New York Times and I saw an article which was entitled A Growing Web of Watchers Builds a Surveillance Society. And as soon as I read that article, you know, I, I told Ellen, my assistant, I said, call this guy, David Shank. I want to talk to him. I want to see what he has to say. And then I found out that he's written several other books. So let me tell you, a little bit about this gentleman, and I'm going to be thrilled to talk to him tonight. Um, David is an award-winning national best-selling author of four books, and he's a contributor to National Geographic, Harper's, National Public Radio, The New Yorker, The uh, New Republic Wired, and The American Scholar, and obviously, I told you, I saw him in The New York Times as well. Um, his most recent book, The Forgetting, won first prize in the British Medical Association, and um, it. it I'm sorry, in the British Medical Association's Popular Medical Book Awards. And it was hailed by John Bailey as the definitive work on Alzheimer's. And that is really the scariest disease, and and that's one that we all worry about. So that's that's interesting, too. In January 2004, uh, there was a PBS broadcast, The Forgetting, which was a documentary that was inspired by David's book, The Forgetting. Uh, Previous to his work on Alzheimer's, Schenck published two books and dozens of essays on the emotional, social, and political ramifications of the information revolution. Data Smog was hailed by the New York Times as an indispensable guide to the big picture of technology's cultural impact. The book, which was profiled on 60 Minutes, was supported by a fellowship from the Freedom Forum Media Studies Center at Columbia University and was later not, uh, named as a finalist for the McGannon Award for Social and Ethical Relevance in Communication Policy. Following the book Data Smog, uh, David also wrote a column for Hot Wired, uh, contributed to commentaries for NPR, All Things Considered, which I've been on that show too. And um, he co-founded Technorealism. And you can go to technorealism.org and and see a little bit. In fact, I even tried to sign up today to to get more information on technorealism. It's a movement encouraging balanced consideration of technology's effect on humanity, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. And recently, he's uh, written about the emerging age of surveillance for National Geographic. And he's even at work um, on a related documentary uh, David has written tremendously, and I, I thoroughly enjoy his his uh, writings, and I'm so thrilled for him to join us. David, are you there all the way from the East Coast? I
2: sure am. Hi, Mari. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I love the way you write. You know, I'm an author, too, but I'm not as good as you are, that's for sure. I, uh, I really love the way you...
2: Uh, well, I think the only difference is you've got a real job, and I... <laughs> i've been lucky enough to not have anything else around my neck, and I just spend gobs and gobs of time trying to get those sentences just right so
0: it's great it's great i Thank should you're you a great great mentor um you know let 's talk about that article I read because it really struck me that you are right where my heart is, and I wanted you to talk to our audience a little bit about what what it means this growing web of watchers
2: well, you know, I think that um in many ways the the words we use about uh, about privacy are really referring to an old paradigm. we talk about you know there's when this um, when this scandal broke, I think we can call it somewhat of a scandal about uh president bush's uh uh program secret program to to monitor uh, to monitor uh citizens even in the united states
0: right the n s a uh, domestic spying that's yeah
2: right yeah um you know, it was, it was this big question of whether or not our privacy had been invaded, and, uh, you know, what struck me was that, um, you know, we live in this society where our privacy is, um, I don't even know if our privacy really exists anymore. I mean, from a corporate standpoint, we give so much information away, and corporations watch so much of what we do without telling us that they're watching. Uh, and they know so much about us, and we're really also just at the beginning of, of, of the being able to exploit that with, with all sorts of new technologies. And yet, when we talk about privacy, we don't even mean uh, consumer privacy. We All we mean generally is, is whether the big brother, uh, you know, the federal government, is snooping in our lives, which, if it did, wouldn't have a whole lot of relevance to our lives anyway unless we were committing federal crimes. So uh, in this piece in the Times, um, I wasn't really trying to argue for or against uh, President Bush's program. I was just trying to to remind people that privacy has really become something very different in the last, say, 10 or 15 years with with all the new technologies. And it's time to really, you know, look far and wide at what privacy is, what it isn't, and to just establish that that the uh, the ground is kind of changing beneath our feet.
0: Exactly. You know, back in the 1800s, the late 1800s, Justice Brandeis had defined privacy as the right to be left alone. And as we are in this information age, it's it's more like the right to have some control over your personal information, Would which... Obviously, you're talking about the vanishing privacy, and and there's very little of that left. And and it to me, it's um, like you said, we have to have a whole new way of we uh, of thinking about privacy. And is there any privacy? And are we going to value that?
2: Yeah, and and I'm frankly not even sure um, that we necessarily need all the privacy that we that we kind of cherish with our rhetoric this idea that we should that the federal government shouldn't be snooping into our lives and they should not know anything about us and i actually don't you know now i'm not really in the business of advocating my opinions but i i think it's somewhat of a question whether we need this really high high standard of privacy on a on a the level of, of a citizen to government, because I think that if we put in safeguards, I think the government can be trusted to know certain things about us, and obviously there is a new we're in a new climate right now where terrorism is real, <laughs> whether or not right. you are a Bush supporter or not, you know that we all know that terrorism is real, and that that, that we live in a, a very dangerous world with technologies that are getting more dangerous and uh so there is a there is a trade off to be made here, clearly in terms of making sure the government can. Can protect us at least as best they can, um, but I think it's just funny that we talk about you know whether or not we're making we're making that trade off correctly, and meanwhile we're not as 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 consumers we're not paying attention really to the fact that we are just completely opening the store and the front door to corporations and letting them just poke around at our our minutia and learn so much about us. And they're developing this very powerful understanding of who we are as as individual consumers, and they're really already being able to exploit that. And what I also did in the piece is is try to warn people that we're on the cusp now of of uh, a number of technologies that are going to take that to another level. Um, and um, I mean, one of the technologies is pattern recognition, which sounds kind of geeky and harmless, but Technology, but you know, computers are um, are not only uh, very quick; they're actually also getting more or less smart. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also more or less entering the realm of real intelligence, which may just sound very bizarre to people because we know there's a difference between human intelligence and and the computer that you order things to do. But we are now developing software that is so powerful. It can look at things, it can look at, at you know billions of pieces of data in you know in, in just a few seconds time and it can make sense out of that data in a way that a brain with two eyes could not.
1: Right. It can discern
2: things that we as human beings cannot. So um uh, so that's going to yield all sorts of just fascinating understandings. We're gonna see computers help discover new drugs and help ferret out terrorists for us. We're also gonna see computers start to understand individual consumers and their decisions better than better than marketers in in human marketers could which is uh, which is I think a pretty scary thing to me at least
0: yeah are you talking about like Hal and the space odyssey remember the (laughs) movie
2: well yeah of course yeah I mean (laughs) I I don't know if if the computers will talk as (laughs) will sound as human as Hal, but in many ways they'll be they'll be able to do things that that dwarf our intelligence they may not have the complete breadth of intelligence that human beings have because of, obviously they'll only do what we tell them to do but uh, at least for the time being which is a whole other question right, but, right. but um but, but the things that some people tell them to do instruct them to do and program to, them to do are just almost beyond comprehension in terms of how uh... just how intelligent uh, they are, and what sorts of uh, what sort of uh, judgments they'll be able to make?
0: Yeah, but it's it's a little bit scary to think that you can quote. I mean, are we going to say that we can a hundred percent trust these computers not to be biased? Isn't it like whoever really? Um, you know, sets up that software? Are we going to have, for example, false positives saying that a person is a terrorist when really they're not, or they're a criminal when really they're not? I mean, there's going to be some data input. The reason I'm bringing this up, and my audience has actually heard one of my clients, Ray Lorenzo, who started out as a victim of criminal identity theft, but his actual imposter was convicted. And there was a mistake in the uh, Suffolk County, New York records where some clerk input into the computer that my guy, the good guy, was convicted— and the bad guy was the alias and, yeah. and and this has been in this guy's life for five years and i 'm actually doing this and he can 't even pay me and I 'm working on it so you know I get a little scared when I see that this guy is deemed by myriad computers that are selling background checks um, that I see that they're calling him a criminal
2: yeah well we need we need obviously a lot more sunlight in in the process of the computers that hold our um, the databases that hold our, um, our, our credit data and our, um, you know, Background our, our, stuff, yeah. our financial data. We need to know, I mean, there's just, there's not nearly enough. I, I've run into this, uh, not nearly as bad a situation as you just described, but I've run into a problem with my own, uh, you know, credit report in the past. And I think, you know, every news story I've ever heard on it where the journalist calls up their own credit report, they find things that are just dead wrong and the names have been conflated. And, and um you, you know so there's all sorts of problems there and and you know the problem there is that i i think is that the the government is is just doesn't have the um uh, uh i shouldn't say the government particular politicians don't have the the wherewithal to challenge these uh i guess these very powerful companies and and bring enough sunlight into the process because i think sunlight would take care of it if we were if we had full disclosure if we had real reports that you know came to us that were easy to read and asked us to sign off on the accuracy of certain data you know we could clean this stuff up pretty easily, I would think
0: right when you 're talking about sunlight you 're talking about transparency so that we can all see what 's really out there aren 't you you're right. talking about shine the light here on this so we can see what 's going on. The good news is like with your credit report david let you're talking about that with your credit report you do have the right to get your credit report and now you can get it for free from each of the big three credit reporting agencies this year uh every year once a year at annualcreditreport.com but something like what happened to Ray with the criminal background check you don't have that right Mm. you can't you don't there is no central repository you've got big companies like LexisNexis axiom and choice point which are these you know commercial companies and i think this is what you were ta- alluding to is that these big companies not just the retailers but big companies are collecting data on us that they buy and sell from each other i mean it's, yeah. it's you know it's it's a uh, it's the currency of our society is information and um but you know you had said something in that article about you know um there is a distinction between you know uh, Government access to and government surveillance uh, versus you know commercial surveillance, and how do you see that as a distinction?
2: Well, I think that that um, I think the, the hidden the, the the concern that no one is really talking about is, is um, and the and the much bigger concern in my mind is is what corporations are coming to know about us. I mean, when when we're on the web now. And we are clicking around, innocently enough, uh, just looking at stuff, researching stuff, uh, buying things here and there. We are leaving trails of our behavior. That um, yes, they're sitting there for the FBI to come in. If the FBI got interested in me for whatever reason, they could probably you know issue warrants and they could find out all sorts of things. And obviously. If they were investigating a very serious crime, they could come to my house and look at my computer and see all the stuff that i 've even tried to erase because they can pull most of that out of your out of your uh, hard drive but but short of the the criminal side of it i 'm leaving trails that um, that google doesn 't have to get a warrant right. <laughs> to look at at this stuff amazon doesn 't have to get a warrant to look at this stuff i 've already signed off on giving them permission by signing up to their service and clicking those. Those dialogue boxes that say, "Do you agree to our terms?" and I, you just quickly want to say yes, you can use the software or use the website. I've given these websites, as a as a as a web consumer, permission to follow what I do. In some cases, to read my email if I'm using a service like Google, uh, like Google's Gmail, right? Um, to put together years and years of purchases into a profile that can learn, that, that could that could know really. Um, and this is it's kind of bizarre to say out loud, but really, the profile could tell cer- certain certain um, um, online companies more about me than I know about myself.
0: Right, right. You know,
2: I mean, you make think about all the unconscious decisions that we make from moment to moment, and our nervous little habits and our parts of speech. We we do know ourselves in you know in a certain regard, but. I'm quite certain that if someone, you know, if an anthropologist sat there in the corner of my office and studied me for a couple of months and made all sorts of notes and noticed how many times I responded to certain sounds and smells and this and that, well, the the web is doing that. The web, is, is, the web knows how we respond to, uh, they haven't gotten smells in there yet, although I'm sure that's coming, but they know how we respond to certain things on a web page. They know what we click. And after a while, after you add all those clicks up, you start to get a sense of why we click. Right. And once you do that, you really get an understanding of who you are and what you're going to respond to in the future. And I think that we're going to be seeing all sorts of really, really clever uh, micro-marketing strategies that build on this information.
0: Well, you know it's already happening when you go to Amazon and you've bought before. They go, hi, Mari. You're interested (laughs) in… privacy why don't you buy David shank's book data smog right. you know I mean we're seeing that already and some people say hey I like that because yeah. when I when I go on I don't have to worry I know that they're gonna choose new books for me that that perhaps I wouldn't have even looked at so you know and, and I'm gonna play the devil's advocate with you because I'm scared to death of all this stuff but you know people say to me so so what if these companies know it they can market and I don't have to read stupid ads I'll, I'll just get stuff that I know and you know like you had said in one of the articles, you know, something like, okay, so my husband likes fishing, and um, if they read his email and they see he's going fishing, they might want to say, hey, there's a new rod out there, and you want to pick up this new rod because you're going to be able to catch big bass with this rod, you know? Yeah. Um, so they're going to say, so so what, David?
2: So yeah, what? well, you know what? I... I, I... <laughs> I don't know that I agree with the so what, but I I definitely agree that there are benefits here. I mean, and and what I another thing that I tried to articulate in my article is this is not this is not a question of just corporations doing bad. It's it's a question of corporations coming up with very clever things that are services that we're asking for. I mean, uh the the web in large a lot of these technologies are about are making our lives more efficient. Um giving us access to, uh, goods and services that we, for a lower price, uh, not having to wait in line in many, many cases, not even having to leave your desk to, you know, to shop or to, to have things done for you. And the benefits are, are, you know, there's a long, long list of benefits, um, in, in these services, including the idea that someone like Amazon is going to be able to predict, um, predict the, um, the sorts of books that you're going to be interested in knowing about or records or you know whatever it is I mean Amazon sells virtually uh, anything, everything these days right, right. Um, the problem is that um, the problem is that we're making this grand trade-off we are in return for all of this efficiency and these these cost savings um, and these improvements in productivity in, in our lives, in our consumer lives, um, we are letting the we are letting all these corporations know about us, and we are giving them license to manipulate us in ways that um, we don't know we are simply not aware of. Um, we're letting them watch stuff that we're not we don't know what they're watching and what they're paying attention to, and. And it may not actually have much of a downside now because the tools may not really be there to exploit this information. but if you take something like uh Google, and I'm a huge fan of all the things that that, that google has done i'm I'm not here just to bash Google; I think they're an amazing company that has brought just so many neat things to to the internet but But you have to take a look at, at the power that Google is amassing over a long period of time that we're just seeing the beginning of now. Google has a, 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 an email service which is free to people. And if you sign up to that service, you basically stay logged on and they know who you are as not only as you're using your email, which their computers can read and do regularly scans so that they can put in uh, relevant ads. You are also giving them license to make a record of all of your searches. I mean, virtually all of us now use Google for most of our searches. So I'm sitting here logged into this Google service because um, I'm dschenk at googlemail.com dot com or whatever my gmail dot com whatever my email address is there, and they're watching all the clicks I make, not just you know today, not just a month ago, day after day after day after day. Not just now when I'm 39 years old, but when you know when I'm 49, when I'm 59, when I'm 69, right. they're going to have a lifetime. They are going to know so much about me. You talk about a, a record. Um, a, a record of data on a, on a specific person—they're going to have a dossier that makes the old FBI files look, you know, absolutely chintzy. And what are they going to be able to do with that? So right now, we can say, well, the guys who founded Google are, you know, these real social humanitarians, and they have this motto that says, "Don't be evil." And well, we can trust Google because they're a special kind of company. Well, what happens when they? when those guys die or what happens when those guys retire and turn the company over to someone else if you actually look at the fine print which i did to write write this times article google google has the power to do anything they want with this information they could sell it they could sell the company so right now we all kind of feel good that google has the right set of ethics that they we hope we we hope and and trust that they're not going to exploit it you know t- to the nth degree but there's no there's nothing stopping them from from doing that in the future and I think we have to have the expectation that they will and any other company like them will. And there'll be lots of other companies that come along like Google that, that uh have that kind of power.
0: And you know, David, they they were fighting the Justice Department to protect that information that they have on consumers that they didn't want to turn it over to the government. And we'll see basically what that, what happens because, like already, we know that Yahoo has turned over information, Microsoft has turned over information, and many of these other uh, search engines has turned over information to the government. So, when you're talking about all that information that's been turned over to the government, you know the the, the Privacy Act. Of 1974 says that the uh, the government won't have any of these secret files, but instead they've outsourced it. Yeah. They've outsourced it to companies like ChoicePoint, Axiom, to Yahoo. They're they're getting all this information. So, you know when. Uh, what what's going to be happening with the profiles? What if there's some administration in power that doesn't like the fact that you're questioning the NSA surveillance? Or what if there is something in, you know, someone in power who just says, hey, you know, um, let's get this guy. And the guy really was having an affair with somebody else's wife. I mean, we know that there's dirty insiders who have access to this information. So to me, Without any oversight, without any, as you call it, sunshine or transparency, yeah. there's, a, you know, it's like a free-for-all. You're giving all this information away.
2: Yeah. And, you know, but, you know, and I agree with everything you said, but to, to play devil's advocate to that for a second, the the government at least has all sorts of built-in um built-in regulations about how information can be used. They need to go through certain machinations the court, you know, has to give them permission to do certain things and they're not that. Not since supposed the Patriot
0: the... Act, though. Yeah. I mean <laughs> Well, no, it's, it's,
2: it's true, but at least there's legislation that says and 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 there's supposed to be at least a process that as citizens we watch this stuff and we have representatives and we but if you look at if you ask the exact same questions about the corporate world, there really isn't anything. Right. I mean, there's uh, so far as I know, there isn't any kind of Restriction on what companies can do with this information—they don't have to. They don't have to. uh, They don't have to throw away their files after a certain number of years or anything like that. Right. So we need uh, the only
0: restrictions is like under the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, which was you know for financial institutions that they um, cannot sell to a I mean they you have the right to opt out of them selling your information to third party non affiliates, but of course with affiliates you have no right to opt out of them sharing that information and and everybody all these big companies like G E has so many affiliates that, you know, your stuff is being transferred all the time. Yeah. You know, and, and even your medical information now can be transferred under the new legislation that's pending. You know, there's going to be all this electronic information that can really be shared with anybody. You know, yeah. I mean, what's going to happen when they, for example, how about this? You, you're talking about Google or, or any of these big information data gatherers, even like ChoicePoint. And, and if they sell, for example, to a bank. And somehow in your email, you say that you're going under chemotherapy or maybe there's something in there that shows that you might be at a high risk for a loan or for a mortgage or for health insurance or life insurance or disability insurance. I mean, we're talking about some insidious things that are already starting to happen, David. And, and that's the kind of stuff that scares me that you know there's no talk about you might not even know why you're being denied that loan. they just you know or or why you're getting a a higher interest rate, and they're not telling you
1: yeah
2: yeah and what we really need is we need we need um i think Congress is the appropriate body to step in and look at this from a consumer point of view and really start to break this down and look at every kind of transaction. The informational transaction that we make online and what is done with that information, and not only make sure that it's safeguarded once it gets on the other side in some you know fault or something, but we need to make sure that we as consumers know what we're telling, uh, what we're telling these companies about us. We need, I mean, for example, when we're clicking through sites on the internet, there should be. Um, and I know I'm. I will. Enrage all sorts of libertarians, saying that there could be that there should be legislation about the internet. But I think that there should be legislation that that mandates that websites, when they're taking in any information about uh, about choices we're making on the internet, there should be um, just a uh, the most user-friendly Disney-like sign in the world saying, "You are now telling X company this about yourself. Right. This information." You know, this exact information is being recorded at this time.
0: Right. Check
2: here if you don't want that information to be recorded right. at this time. Um, you or know, even I
0: mean, better, check here if you will allow us that's to. That's right. <laughs> of
2: course, the <laughs> opt-in would be, opt-in would is be much better than right. the opt-out. Right. But right. even assuming that will never happen with right. all the power of corporations, right. at least the disclosure, because because I think actually if that happened, if we got really, really just completely transparent disclosure on that level, There'd be so many things that corporations would be embarrassed about right, that, right. that uh, you know, material that they're that they're keeping on us. They would they would start to feel like they'd be, you know, they'd be ashamed. They'd feel like the FBI is, is kind of like opening up their uh, d- dirty laundry. And I think that that would change some things right there.
0: Right. I mean, you're talking about giving us notice and giving us some kind of understanding of of what's happening because most people don't have a clue what's happening to them. But I want to introduce you before I forget because people who are driving by and they've been listening to this great conversation are saying, who in the heck is talking? Who's she (laughs) talking to? So I want to tell them that we are talking to David Shank, who's uh, an award-winning national bestseller of Four books, and he has written a, a wonderful New York Times article in, in January, and he's written a book called Data Smog that's a couple years old. But I, I really think people need to be reading it. And I, I want to kind of s- switch gears a little bit and maybe come back to this stuff because I want to talk about the data smog. It's it's getting to me, and and I think um, you know I think about this all the time. Can you tell my audience what do you, what exactly do you mean by data smog?
2: data smog is just my clever or not quite not quite <laughs> clever enough term uh it's about 10 years old now uh for information overload for this for this feeling that we're not only living in this world where so much information is at our fingertips and is producing all these great benefits for us but we're also overwhelmed by the exact same thing and we live not only in this culture of information uh, and efficiency and productivity, but also in this culture of distraction, where there's so much thrown at us, and and in many cases that we're throwing at ourselves, um, that uh, it becomes this kind of wrestling match. On the one hand, yes, we have all this benefits. On the other hand, um, you know, a big part of our lives is trying to manage and even stay away from this just kind of overwhelming feeling of of all this data and stimulus.
0: You know David, that is so right when I when I was reading Data Smog, I was thinking to myself, this is really me. And and we were talking Lloyd and I, my engineer and I were talking about this last night like, oh my gosh, you know, this the internet is great. I I get up early in the morning and I'm reading emails and I get emails from all over the world and I was able to contact you by email and here you're on the other side of the country. So that's fabulous. But I am, I'm exhausted by it. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm just stressed out by it. And then, you know, I think, how did I ever live without email? How did I ever live without a cell phone? You know, <laughs> how did I do this? Yeah. And, and yet I'm saying, oh, it's supposed to be convenient. It's supposed to make my life easier. But you know what, David, it hasn't made my life easier. It's it. What, what is that? What price am I paying here? Yeah.
2: Well, um you know I think that there just there's so many opportunities here, and in many ways it um, they they make our life richer and we're able to do things um, I mean you know we could spend hours talking about the benefits of all this stuff. I kind of realized about ten or twelve years ago that there were just as this as the internet revolution was kind of getting uh, really getting uh, up some speed that there was just going to be so much um, Corporate hype about all the benefits, and, and a lot of it was would be correct, but still, just all this kind of corporate-funded uh, advertising about all the benefits of all these tools. That w- what we needed is is some people to also talk about some of the trade-offs that we're making. And um, you know, the first thing I came to realize is each time you get a new tool in your life, you are giving something up. You you um, you know you have you are getting a New opportunities, but you're also changing your life, and you are um, either voluntarily or involuntarily uh, introducing a new dynamic where you'll be giving up something. Maybe you'll be giving up time. Maybe you'll be giving up attention. You know, something is, 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 um, as 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 harmless seeming and as insignificant as as uh, caller ID now, where uh, excuse me, as call waiting now, where we're talking on the phone. Well just the interruption of a conversation i mean that can have profound profound uh implications for the nature of 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 conversation it really is a completely different thing to have a phone call that starts in one place and goes to its natural end or be interrupted by something I, who out there listening has been interrupted by you know one of these uh call waiting beeps and can honestly say that they went back to where they right where they were in the conversation. It just completely disrupts it. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Maybe people use call waiting and get something out of it. But I'm saying that all of these oppor- all of these new opportunities do change our lives, and we do make trade-offs. And what I did in, in Data Smog and in the subsequent writing was to try to get people to think about what we're giving up as we get all these new tools and uh, and benefits
0: well, one of the things obviously, with this show is is we we talk a lot about how. In technology, we are giving up a lot of privacy, a lot of our own person, and a lot of a lot of our own confidentiality. You know, you talk a little bit about cell phones. What's happening in the future with cell phones? How is that going to be? I mean, I really, you know, everybody can understand the conveniences. What I think most people don't understand is the insidious, hidden stuff or the shadows um, of what. Kind of things could happen, and I think it 's important for them to have this at a conscious level to prevent it. so you talked a little bit about in the future what what are going to be some of the real uh, scary things that we need to think about and and be aware of and shine the light on with cell phones
2: Well, I think that with cell phones we are we 're a couple of years away from cell phones helping to i think erase any shred of privacy that we have either from one another or from corporations because once you combine cell phones with GPS and with um and with internet surfing and now you know shopping and email and all that stuff once you really have that on the same device you're talking about uh, a device where you can track where anyone is right um at any time and uh, I mean something you know it could be as personal as a parent knowing where their teenager is every second of the day and being able to track their movements, which, of course, in an emergency would be extremely useful. We already have tools built into some GPS phones and some kind of newfangled GPS watches and things that, that would enable a parent to find a kid in an emergency, and obviously that's uh, they even have this a similar thing with with Alzheimer's patients who uh, can wander uh, away and obviously in that situation you want to be able to find that person right and call the police and say they're you know they're in so and so go go rescue them well that's that's a great benefit that will actually save lives on the other hand can you imagine a culture where every parent knows for certain where every where their kid is at all times i mean that that completely busts open this sense of of trust right. and th- that we that we build up in, in in family living as we know it. Now, what what is that going to be like for families in 25 or 30 years? I have no idea. But I think it's going to be a humongous paradigm shift, and that's just one tiny little example. Of, yeah, well, of what's parents going to and
0: children, people, you know, if they hear that, they're going to say, "Well, look, you know, when my kids are under eighteen, I really should have a right to know where they are, and I should be following them." And and it may be bad, and it may somehow inhibit their their growth in terms of of you know, getting their own person, you know, as teenagers when they have to be independent. But but I'm thinking more about like what about where your employer knows where you are every second, Absolutely. even when you're not at work. You know, I mean, what about that happening if you have a, a phone that is that that you were given by your corporation and they know where you are? You know, at ten o'clock at night. What business is it of theirs? That's that's an issue for Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, you know, I mean, another thing you that we talked about, and actually we've interviewed uh, Catherine Albrecht who wrote Spy Chips, and you talk a little bit about RFI. IDs in your article and also yeah. in your books and yeah. you know that one why don't you talk a little bit about the concern with rfids which are the radio frequency identifier technology yeah
2: well first before i do that, let me just make one little comment on corporations i, I think you're right on the money there i mean already you know so many so many people working in offices w- walk around with these magnetic you know key cards that can get them into doors and so right. forth and then they log on to their computers as as they should do Um, So that's good for privacy and good for access and good for security. But at the same time, some people in that corporation know where they are at all times. In fact, the other day, and I'm sure this wasn't supposed to happen, I was calling, I can't remember the exact circumstance, I was calling looking for someone, and it wasn't someone I know. I was just, I don't know, I was looking for this person, and they weren't at their desk. And out of the blue, the person I was talking to told me, that they hadn't been in their office in a certain amount of time. Oh
0: yeah, right. And
2: that they had, in, in fact, but they were still in the building. Right. And um, and I think they could have even got more specific than that. And they I were said, in the
0: bathroom. <laughs> <laughs>
2: right. Exactly. Yeah. So, and this was just an innocuous thing where, wow, this person. I mean, this person is not, you know, as uh, trying to actively snoop on them. They just have access to this information and they're and they're revealing it to me who they don't even know who right. I am I, I'm calling for the first time Exactly So uh, that's I mean that that really should send chills up people's spine that kind of thing makes me uh when I think about that makes me glad that I work in a home office and don't have to key cards <laughs> to any <laughs> any any part of my house
0: Right But right. the
2: RFID stuff is really I think it's it's hard to know exactly what's going to happen but the but the potential of it is just is just mind-boggling this idea that um, every single consumer item that we buy—not just type of item, but every single specific item—for example, every razor blade, every tube of toothpaste, every item of clothing—would would might in a few years' time have its own identifying um, chip that's been kind of sewn into the lining of the clothing that gives off its own little. Uh, through a, through, a, through a frequency through a radio frequency, its own little identifying mark, I am a certain kind of clothing that 's been bought at you know through this certain kind of store right um, you know the benefits are are there, we can think of of some funny benefits like washing machines, knowing rec, being able to recognize colors, clothing, and using certain water, and so we wouldn 't have to decide whether we 're using cold or warm or certain kinds of soap or so forth, but at the same time, we can also imagine that we're walking around with all these identifying markers that are just screaming information about ourselves. So you're walking into a store, and you walk into a zone, and the store, at least the computers in the store, know what kind of clothing you wear. They They know what it costs. They know what color it is. They know all these preferences about you that you, some of which you may be aware of and some of which you may not be aware of, but most of which you will not be aware that they are aware. Right. And they will be thinking, um, you know, using that word in quotations, but these computers will then be thinking about what kind of person makes these decisions. And and you think you're just this anonymous person who's walking into the store. Well, all of a sudden you see these advertisements flashing up on these little micro screens that are in your shopping cart or or in little aisles, or perhaps you're looking at razor blades. You see these little advertisements, and you may start to notice that these advertisements really are talking to you. They're reflecting... Uh, or maybe you won't notice, but they are reflecting decisions that you've made in the past, maybe years ago, but they do know something about you. This is what we were talking about earlier, that you add up all these pieces of information, and and when you have software that can make sense of that, you're talking about these uh, these really powerful personality profiles that can be put to all sorts of manipulating use. And that's just one example of something that I thought of on the fly. I'm sure there are all sorts of examples. Just the idea that you are wearing all these kind of ID ID cards that are screaming out to to uh to all these uh radio receivers in in, uh in various uh Locales,
0: yeah, it's like Minority Report. Remember with Tom Cruise when he was sure. walking around? But what's even scarier is when those get um, linked up with your uh, real ID. You know, your driver's license right. that that's going to have your uh, biometric information in there, and RFID, and the passport that has the RFID in it. So all of your um, governmental uh, identification will also have RFID, and and then there's a profile on you that links everything. I have to laugh because um, when I interviewed um, one of our uh, California senators, Senator Simidian, um he had introduced one of the first states legislation on RFIDs that kind of fell apart because the RFID industry has got lots of money to pay off. Lots of lobbyists, and he mm-hmm. told us that there were RFIDs in their badges. And um, he didn't, no one knew about it, but in the California legislature, there were uh, these little RFIDs in the badges that got read as you went in to vote and out. From voting, Uh and then they disclosed. They, I mean, they found out about it, and all of these senators were kind of up up in arms that they didn't know it was. They talk about no sunshine. They didn't even know that there were RFID's in their badges, and there was a huge case here in, in a school in Northern California where um, the school was getting these RFIDs and these little badges that the kids had to wear and the parents were getting furious. So it was a big coalition of, you know, right-wing, very conservative parents um, and, and the ACLU coming together about the dangers of RFIDs. And that's still being played out right now in our California legislature about what are we going to do? I mean, we, these RFID's can be wonderful. They can tell us, like you know, how much if if you have stock, you know, how many things do you have? Like if your books, you know, how many books are in stock? How many have gone out? You know, right. those kinds of things are helpful. But if they're not deactivated, and and how else are going to these things are going to be used? And are there any safeguards? And are, you know, the technology is far beyond. The safeguards in the law.
2: Yeah, I yeah, I, I I think you're you're dead on there. And I think, you know, the point to be made, which just echoes what you're saying, is that, you know, if if people if someone asks you, you know, so what what's the problem here, the the I think the real point to be made is we don't know what the problem is. Right. The potential for abuse is beyond our our conceptual imagination right now. We all we know is that the the power of these technologies is immense and, and almost impossible to conceive, and that the application for these technologies, once they come into use and once they're pervasive, um, are, are going to be, this, the sky's the limit in terms of how they'll be, be used, and there'll be all sorts of things that we can't even think of now, and they'll be impossible to stop once they, you know, once they exist, they exist.
0: Right, and once they're pervasive,
2: they're pervasive.
0: Yeah, it's like you can't put it out of you know everything back into Pandora's box, and that's one of the things. At least in California, we're saying, hey, we're not trying to stop this technology. What we're trying to do is study it, understand it, put in some safeguards into place, and then let it flourish. But um, that isn't how they're seeing the the industry itself is so hot. To use this for everything for terrorism and the, and they do it in the name of terrorism. But but let me first introduce you again, just in case people sure. are driving by and they, and they get to know like what are these people talking about. This is David Shank. David is an award-winning national best-selling author of several books. And uh, he's talking to us about the information age and technology and all sorts of wonderful things. You know, David, one of the things that I I thought was really interesting in in data smog was what you were talking about uh, processing deficit, that we have so much information. And this is kind of how I'm feeling, like my brain is burning up. But um, with all this information that is readily available in in a nanosecond to, to us, you know, I mean, I start going on the internet and I research one thing and then I'm somewhere else. And I'm five hours later, I have just like jumped all over the world. Yeah. And, and, you know, my, my brain is like frying. So what about this thing called processing deficit? What, what is that all about? You know, you know, the the fact that we, we can't process this information as fast as it's coming in. How, how is that? affecting us as a society?
2: Well, one thing is it leads to a lot of anxiety. Not something that we need more of.
0: Right, right. Uh,
2: Certainly not something that I need any more of. But, you know, I think we need to realize that um, and I think just people need to keep this in mind. It's not necessarily... None of these things are are necessarily arguments for getting rid of technologies. It's really just so that people understand what they're dealing with and kind of keep it in mind as they're using the technologies so they can bring more of the decisions to the conscious mind as opposed to letting the unconscious mind kind of drive what they're doing. So just for people to realize that they're that they are uh, many, many times more distracted than than they were, say, ten or fifteen years ago, just because of the amount of stimulus coming in. And for people to realize that when you're looking at an advertisement and they're bombarding you with all these images um, and all these messages, that the idea there is to make you anxious and to give you some fears and to give you also an outlet for, for those fears, which is buying something to make you feel better, without giving you the time to, to consciously process um, the, lot, the kind of rationale of those fears, the kind of logic... Uh, logical basis for all these claims, so they throw all these kind of fearful ideas at you, and then before you have a, a chance, before your logical mind has a has a chance to say that doesn't really make sense, the fear is already there, and the suggestion for how to alleviate the fear, which is to buy something, is already there, and it's already implanted in your brain. And then before you have a chance to even think about it for another second, you're on to another ad, and and the whole process is is starting over again. So we live in this, in many ways, we I think we live in this culture of distraction and um you know i think it's not something that we want to that that we can unplug ourselves from if we want to be a part of society it's in many ways not something that we want to that we want to unplug ourselves from but to be aware of it i think is is just an imperative these these days to realize that this is just a major part of our minute to minute existence
0: well you know when when you talk about this you know all this uh, information if you think about it um how about all this information that these intelligence agencies are getting from from these data brokers you know i think about uh companies like choicepoint which you you know you know about that mm-hmm. had the big data breach but they are a mega company that has bought up numerous other companies. In fact, we're going to be interviewing in a couple of weeks. We're going to be interviewing the privacy officer for ChoicePoint. Um, and and ChoicePoint does some great work. And now that they've gotten their hand slapped, they're actually probably going to be the best company of those. Um, but LexisNexis was another one. Axiom. I mean, we're talking about profiles that they have on you David and they have on me which I've already seen mine about 30 pages long and with a lot of errors in it and they collect a tremendous amount of information and then they sell it to the government okay they they sell it to the government and the government then uh, you know shares it with NSA and and you know all of these huge databases of information in the name of of security which obviously you and I want our families to be secure and we're yeah. worried about terrorism so that that makes sense but let me ask you something when they've got they're on overload with information too when they're getting these mega databases of of literally millions of people in this country that they're you know siphoning through this stuff to look yeah. through it with their computers what about is that actually going to hinder our security you know, and create a lot of false positives? I mean, what about that?
2: I don't really know the answer to that question. I, I, I don't really lose a lot of sleep over over that angle of it because, number one, I've, t- I've talked to a lot of these security people, and they understand that false positives are uh, really um, the poison pill in what they do. If they can't come up with a system to eliminate most false positives, then they can't do their job, and they also – can't um they can't have any kind of system of public alerts that's not going to just make people completely numb, so I think that they you know these the the people who are smart at this realize that they need to come up with systems that flag only flag so many people you're always going to be flagging people that that turn out to be innocent, but you can't but if they flag too many of them and they waste too much of their own time then they aren't they're not going to catch the bad guys and then they're going to be held accountable for not for not doing this one of the nice things with this whole terrorism thing is that there is now accountability we can't you know this if there's another attack the CIA CIA and the NSA is not going to be able to say they weren't warned and they didn't you know have a chance to prevent it and there'll be people who you know who will be held accountable for for not uh finding this stuff i also just personally as a citizen i don't worry about the NSA knowing about me i mean i don't have anything to um Hide from the NSA. I don't. uh, I mean, I know that's kind of a naive thing to say, and and maybe I'm just not thinking about ways that this information. Well,
0: David, I have to. I have to tell you, yeah. Well, like for example, if there's information that's erroneous, and for example, these big data brokers that you that have this information that has errors, and and if you you know, for example, let me give you a good example. You know, seventy percent of credit reports have errors. Okay, the United States Public Interest Research Group found that. Twenty-nine percent are enough – 25 percent are enough to keep you from even getting a job, Um, and those are errors. What about the fact that we don't have any sunlight on these huge megadata brokers that are selling information that is not correct, like I told you about Ray? What what about that information? You know, what about all the people that are turned away on, you know, on these watch lists for TSA that they can't even travel for false positives? I think, you know, that – if, if at least from what i hear and you probably don't hear this you know i mean you don't yeah you know you, much more about this i, I mean i just get all these people calling me with hey this is i was just arrested and i don't even i don't even live in that state and i never have even been in that state and, Yeah. and there's you know these uh data brokers that have all this information and there's no duty to be accurate. So you're not afraid because you haven't done anything wrong, but what if something erroneous gets in there and you're trying to change it like that poor guy that was arrested for the Madrid bombings. Okay. I yeah. mean, they, they, they gathered this information on him and they had a fingerprint that didn't even match at all. And, yeah. the, and the, the Spaniards did it. So I think you really have to think about when any, anybody tells me I have nothing to fear then I I worry because they don't recognize that there's so much that they that's there's no light shining on like you talked about there's no sunshine yeah, on but, all of these databases and you might have something to fear I, I suggest that you have somebody do a background check on you and see if there's anything to fear because I think you'll see things that you'll be pretty shocked about which I've seen <laughs>
2: yeah I, I, I'm I'm glad you said that I mean I think that's I think that's those are great points the Madrid the Madrid bombing sp- suspect is a particularly vivid one because um, you know this guy who I think the what happened was he was Muslim, and then uh, this, this snafu happened with his fingerprint and, and whatever else, Right. and the fact that he was also Muslim, which I think was just a coincidence, the fact that it that he was Muslim, and so then they got really nervous, and and you know this guy's life was uh, was really in in turmoil for I don't know how many months or, or even longer, right? And something like that could happen presumably to anyone i mean uh you could there could be a mistake in a file and these guys could march into my
0: yeah, my office
2: and take my computer away, and you know, it could take me you know eighteen months to straighten the whole thing out, and my livelihood would be destroyed. And so. then
0: David, you'll be calling Marie on the West Coast to say, "Marie, I help me."
2: <laughs> yeah, make sure I have your private email address so I can <laughs> yeah. beef you. If... What you do,
0: what you do. You know, we only have a few minutes left, but I remember you were talking in in your books about um, about we've been talking about data surveillance, and we only have about five minutes, but. Let's talk a little bit about physical surveillance. How what kind of a chilling effect does that have on us as a society?
2: You know, I I don't quite know yet. I think one of the things that's going on that we need to talk about a lot more about is this proliferation of cameras and it's just I think again, I've said this with respect to other things, but it's just getting going. I mean, there's already so so many cameras now in our kind of semi-public spaces in in cities and in malls and and on roads and everything. And, uh, you know, in, every time we see the evening news, we see that they caught uh, someone a- after the fact in a crime because they went back and they looked at security cameras, and that's right. great. And right. I think actually we're going to see, my guess is that on the plus side, we're going to see a revolution in, in, um, in petty crime, uh, in reduction in petty crime over the next, say, 20 or 25 years, because I think there'll be s- virtually no... There'll be virtually no space that isn't photographed and recorded.
0: Right, but it and, doesn't prevent necessarily. It helps you to catch the people afterwards.
2: That's true, but at yeah. a certain point, I mean, when 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 potential criminals realize that they will virtually they're virtually certain to be caught right. um, in these petty crimes, I think we could actually see a real uh, difference there when you see cameras that are just everywhere, cameras in every watch, cameras in every in every baseball cap, in every, you know, I mean, they're already in phones, but, and not just cameras that could take pictures, but cameras that are recording, right. st- they're streaming and recording video that goes to some hidden hard drive that, you know, has some unlimited storage. So, so that, that's kind of a tiny little plus side that I think I can envision. But w- what are the downsides of that? Um, you know, again, I, I don't even know. I think, in a, in a way we're all going to get used to it and, and uh, kind of go about our business. But, Um, we're certainly going to be able to, um, I mean, I could put all kinds of cameras, wireless cameras all over the place already with the current technology. I could be recording all sorts of things from my neighbors and, and friends, and uh, and you know, learning all sorts of things about them that they would they would never know about, and that's just that's just the tip of the iceberg.
0: Yeah, it's just there. There's uh, very little privacy left, but we don't have a lot of time here. I just want to tell people to go to um, to to go to your website at davidschenk.com, and they can see some of your writings and and learn more all about you. And uh, they can also go to this uh, this other website that you have for the. Um, What's that called? Techno
2: Technorealism. Yeah, technorealism.org is just, it's basically just a one page site that will tell them about the idea of technorealism. But they can also find that through my site at davidschenk.com.
0: Right. So they can learn a lot more about technorealism and what some of the suggestions that you have for that. I want to thank you so much for joining us all the way from the East Coast when it's a time when you could spend with your kids.
2: (laughs) My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Okay. So keep my email handy in case you're in one of those profiles, you know.
2: I definitely will.
0: <laughs> and we'll be watching for, just tell me real quick, what's your next book?
2: Well, I have a, actually I have a book coming out in September um, called The Immortal Game, A History of Chess. It's all about the cultural Influence of chess over not just a couple hundred years, but 1500 years. It's really a remarkable history.
0: What fun. Okay, well, we will look for that too. And we thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And we've been listening to, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and also on the web at kuci.org. You can learn more about our guests at kuci.org slash privacy piracy and you can even hear our previous interviews which are archived all from all last year and you can even subscribe to podcasts and listen to all of our fabulous VIP interviews and so make sure that you stay tuned and listen from 6 to 8 to Neapolitan music and then from 8 to 10 for between the lines we will see you every Wednesday from 5 to 6 this is Mari thank you so much Lloyd for being a great engineer and protect your privacy in the information age. Thank you.
2: The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.